This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am your teacher, Jeremy Myers. Do you watch any of those CSI TV shows, Crime Scene Investigator? Frankly, I don't. They just don't really hold my interest. Not my style of TV show I like to watch. But whether you do or not, today I want you to pull out your Crime Scene Investigator badge and look at Genesis 3 with new eyes. Genesis 3 is the oldest cold case in history. (laughs) I think that maybe, just maybe, we have condemned the wrong person all along. I think that it is past time that we bring in Adam and ask him a few more questions. In today's episode, I will introduce you to maybe, well, not maybe, what I believe to be the most important truth in all of Scripture. I believe that the truth you'll learn today is discussed and explained, revealed in some way on almost every page of the Bible. Jesus came to reveal this truth to us. Yet amazingly, most of us have never even seen that it's there in Scripture or even seen that Jesus is revealing this to us. That's because this truth is a truth that is hidden from the foundation of the world. Uh, After you learn what this truth is, you may have some questions about it, how Jesus reveals it, how we see it in Scripture and other places. If so, if that's you, if you want to learn more, I highly recommend you get my new book, The Atonement of God. It goes into a bit more detail on this most important truth in Scripture. And uh, you can get a copy of The Atonement of God on Amazon. It's available in paperback, or you can get the digital Kindle version, if you have a Kindle e-reader or something like that. If you have something else, it's also available at Apple iTunes, Bookstore, Google Play, Kobo, bunch of other places on the internet as well. Anyway, I have so much to cover today, so let's get to it. All right, so today we pick up with Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Well, (laughs) sort of. Today's episode of the One Verse podcast actually looks at the space in between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. I'm sort of looking at the transition between these two chapters. And I, the reason is because the transition is very, very strange. And I sort of think it's strange on purpose. I, I believe that when we read Genesis 3.1, we're supposed to stop and sort of scratch our heads and say, hey, wait a minute, what happened here? What's going on here? And when we do this, it it causes us to look at the text with new eyes and to ask some questions of the text that maybe you have never asked or even considered before. So that's what I want to do with you today, sort of walk you through the process that I have done in, in, in asking these questions of the text and come to some tentative conclusions from it which we then will see in more detail in future episodes of this one verse one verse podcast. So Really, so all we're doing, really, although it's Genesis 3.1, the, the show notes are found at uh, redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 3.1 today. Really, all we're doing is looking at that space in between chapter 2 and chapter 3 and some a- asking some questions 
of it. So let's just begin then. Uh, as you're reading along, you come to Genesis 3.1, and the verse says this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And that's how Genesis 3 begins. Now, whether you're a church-going Christian or not, it's likely you've heard this story a thousand times before. But I really want to invite you to stop and pause and think about it. Look at it with fresh eyes. I want you to come to the story as if you've never heard it before. So if you're reading along in Genesis, you've read Genesis 1, the creation of the world in seven days, and we talked about that. And you're reading Genesis 2, sort of the second creation account, and and... How God creates, you know, Adam and places him in the garden. And then we come to Genesis 3. What sort, this first verse, what sort of questions pop into your head? Act like this crime scene investigator and start asking a few questions. First of all, you would say, a, a talking serpent? <laughs> What's that about? You'd probably say, what does this word cunning means in, in 3.1? And, and why is, is this creation, this good, very good creation that God made, how does it have a cunning serpent? These sorts of questions you would ask, and those are important questions, and, and those are the sorts of questions that often get asked from this text. But as a good crime scene investigator, you want to ask the questions that nobody else is asking. For example, in Genesis 2, we see God, and he creates this man from the dust of the ground and places this man in the Garden of Eden, which God has made, and tells the man, instructs the man to not eat. He can eat from any tree, but not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's one tree he cannot eat from. And then, after God gives this instruction, this command to the man, then God creates the woman. And at the first verse of Genesis chapter 3, the first thing we see is this woman that God made, and she is at the tree. And as a crime scene investigator, alarm bells are going off in your head. You should ask, why is she there? How did she get there? Didn't Adam, didn't the man warn her about this tree? Speaking of Adam, where's he? <laughs> you're this crime scene investigator, and you're trying to find out who done it, right? Well, where's Adam? That's probably the most important question of all. During this entire conversation in 3.1 through 3.5, between the woman and the serpent, the, the, the man is conspicuously absent. And his absence is sort of this big red flag. And, and you sort of assume that he's not even there. But then the text becomes even more strange when we find out in Genesis 3.6 that Adam was, in fact, there with his wife, with the woman, the entire time. The entire time through this conversation that the serpent and the woman are talking about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the fruit on it, Adam is standing right there with her, and he doesn't say a word. So, again, you're looking at this text, and you're thinking, now, wait a second, why are they at this tree why is Adam there with Eve? How did the two of them get to be there together? And why does he stay silent through the entire conversation? Why doesn't he speak up? So you start to try to, you know, piece the events, the order of events back together to try to figure out what the story that you're being told, what is being left out of this story. There seems to be a gaping hole here in between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. Someone is not telling us all the details. 
you know, if we get Adam and Eve into the interrogation room, some of the questions we're asking them is, what are you not telling us? What really happened on the night you forgot to mention? You know, where did you go? What did you do? What details are you leaving out? What is the rest of the story? I was talking to a friend of mine um, a while back. He has two sons. And he tells me that uh, one day, the, the older son, he was about seven years old, asked, they were in the supermarket, and he asked his father, they're going down the candy aisle, and he asked his father, hey, if, if I could have one of those candy bars. <laughs> father said, no, you know, you've had enough sugar, we don't need it. Uh, the, the father, the, the, the friend told me that while he wasn't watching, the older son took the younger son down the candy aisle and pointed out to him the beautifully wrapped candy bars. He told his uh, younger brother how good the candy tasted, and how nice it would be if both of them could have a candy bar. Now, the younger son, he was, you know, about four or five. He, he uh, was a little ignorant of how stores worked, and so he picked up two candy bars and tried to hand one to his older brother. Wow, it'd be great to have a candy bar. You've described it so well. Let's, let's have one. <laughs> um, the older brother said, no, no, no. Save them for when we get home. So the younger brother put both candy bars in his pocket and went to find their father. And uh, the father didn't know the younger son had the two candy bars in his pocket, so he checked out the store and they went home. And when they got home, the younger brother handed the stolen candy bar to his brother, his older brother. Uh, The younger brother, though, not really knowing that he had done anything wrong, started eating the candy bar. And was walking around the house, and he ate it. He made the mistake of eating this candy bar in front of his father. And the father said, hey, where'd you get that? I didn't buy that at the store. The younger said, oh, I got it at the store. Um, and, and the father, sort of suspecting what had gone on here, went and talked to the older brother. Now, of course, he hadn't opened his candy bar yet. He had just, you know, hidden it in one of his dresser drawers. And uh, so the father said, where did the younger son get the candy bar? And did he give you one? Oh, yeah, he gave me one. And you know, the older brother, the story comes out, the older brother, here's the older brother's explanation. Little Johnny gave it to me. You know, he said he got it from the store. I didn't tell him to take it. He just took it all on his own. And, you know, truthfully, the older brother did, he didn't tell a lie. He did not tell his younger brother to take the candy bars. He didn't tell his younger brother to give him one. He just took his younger brother down the candy aisle and described to him the how good the candy bars tasted, and how nice it would be to have one, and wouldn't it be nice if both of them could eat a candy bar, knowing full well that the younger brother had not heard the father say, no, you don't get a candy bar, no, we're not going to buy one, and the younger brother didn't quite understand how stores worked. Anyway, that part of the story the older brother left out. Eventually, of course, the father... (laughs) being the intelligent father he was, knew what had happened, and the whole, eventually the whole story came out, and uh, the older son got quite the spanking. Now, I tell you that story because I sometimes wonder if something similar is occurring here in Genesis 3, or at least between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. I, I wonder if maybe, let's, let's put on our imagination hats, a little sanctified imagination here, I wonder if maybe the story... The order of events between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1 goes something like, like this. Hey Eve, Adam says, you sure look beautiful today. Want to go for a walk through the garden? Sure, she says, let me grab my coat. Oh, wait, I don't have a coat. 
She winks at him slyly. Do you mind if I go naked? <laughs> Adam grins widely. Do you even have to ask? As they walk along, she's holding his hand and whistling to the birds. Wow, Adam exclaims, look at that tree! She looks at where he is pointing. Hey, she says, isn't that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We shouldn't be here, Adam. Oh, it's okay, Adam says. We can hang out by the tree all we want. We just can't eat from the fruit. To be safe, we probably shouldn't even touch the fruit. But wow, is it beautiful! Have you ever wondered, Eve, how this fruit tastes? And it sure looks delicious. I bet it's just bursting with flavor. And you know what God said? He said this fruit will make you more like God. We certainly want to be like God, don't we? Anyway, why don't we just rest under the shade of this tree for a while? We can rest with our backs against the trunk and look up at the fruit in the branches. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I sort of wonder, and obviously I'm making that entire thing up, I have no clue what happened between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1, but I wonder if something like what I just described is what happened. I just find the series of events here to be extremely suspicious. It's a very one-sided story, sort of like the, the, the first version of the one-sided story that the older brother said to his father when the younger brother stole the candy bars from the store and gave him one. Well, I didn't tell him to. He just took them and gave one to me. Uh-huh. After you took him down the candy aisle and described to him how wonderful the candy bars taste and how wonderful it would be to have one. Anyway, I sometimes wonder... Look, later in this story, we'll see this when we get there, after Adam and Eve do eat from the, the fruit of the forbidden tree and God comes to them and says, Hey, what happened here? What does Adam say? Look, the woman, the woman you gave to me, she's the one, she's, she's the one that gave me the fruit. You can't blame me. There I am, God. I'm just hanging out with my wife. You know, we're going for a walk. I'm minding my own business. And she gave the fruit to me. I mean, I, she had already eaten a piece and she didn't look worse to wear for it. So, uh, you know, she didn't seem to affect her. And so I ate one too. I mean, I'm her partner after all, God. What was I supposed to do? I... I I know that's reading an awful lot into the text. So, you know, take it or leave it. I'm just using my imagination here. But the the account, as we find it written here, it leaves out a lot of important details. And I think, I'm certain that we should be very, very, very cautious about blaming Eve for what happens. The only thing Eve really suffered from was curiosity. It was Adam who is most conspicuous by his silent presence in the text. I suspect that if we were to go back and actually watch the events unfold, that it might look a little bit different than we usually imagine. It might look a little bit like that story I just told you about Adam and Eve taking a walk in the garden. Now, I understand this is highly speculative. I'm not asking you to accept it. The Bible, I agree, does not say anything about what I'm saying. But I want you to, you know, think of any possible scenario for why Adam and Eve were hanging out by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on that fateful day in the Garden of Eden. Can you really think 
that it just was a coincidence, that they're just strolling by one day and just happened to stop beneath the branches of some tree they didn't realize was the one tree they were not supposed to eat from, and that Adam just stood silently by as Eve gets questioned and challenged by the serpent. No, it's too much to even imagine that sort of scenario. Something else is clearly going on here. It's plainly obvious that the account as it is written, doesn't contain all the details. Something is missing from the text, but what is missing? And why is it missing? And in fact, since something is so obviously missing, I think that the reason it's missing is because we, you and I, the readers of this text, are supposed to wonder what we are not being told. We are supposed to say, there are obviously holes in this account. What are those holes? What is missing? And why is it missing? Look, take this story and put it, take it out of the Bible and put it in, put it in any other context. Put this story in the mouths of your children. Uh, You know, you would clearly, if Adam and Eve were your children and you had told them not to do something, at least one of them, and then the younger one does it and they come and tell you a story and the older one, oh, it wasn't me, I... Who would you suspect? <laughs> Look, uh, that your children are playing upstairs and, you know, I don't know, one comes down and the door, the door breaks off its hinges, <laughs> right? And you go, what happened here? I don't know, Mom. You know, we, we were just playing and the door fell off its hinges, I promise. Yeah, there, there's, there's holes in that story somewhere, right? <laughs> A door just doesn't break off the hinges. That happened to me a while back. A door handle. We had some friends over and a door handle broke off. Oh, nothing happened. It just fell off. Mm, found out later they were hanging on the door handle. And anyway, I sort of think that's what's going on here. There is a rest of the story, but we don't know what it is. And we'll never know. But one thing I do know. In human history, the strong usually blame the weak. The, the, the victor writes the history books. That's what we're told. It's what we know. The truly guilty are usually the ones who blame the truly innocent. Uh, the insider makes the innocent outsider a scapegoat. I think that if we're looking for someone who is truly guilty in Genesis 3, Adam is the one we bring in for questioning. As a biblical crime scene investigator, my hunch is that Adam is the guilty one. One of the results of the fall, as we're going to see, is that there will be a power struggle between the man and the woman. Genesis 3.16 says that she will desire him. I think that means she will desire his position and he will rule over her. There's going to be a struggle, a power struggle between the two. And we see that power struggle today in our marriages and just in male-female relationships all over the place. But uh, And this is not the way it's supposed to be. The man and the woman were supposed to work together as the image of God. That's what we've seen in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, But instead, they struggle against one another for preeminence and power. Uh, And because the man, physiologically, you know, historically, has been stronger, physically stronger than the woman, he's he's typically the one who wins the, the contest. He rules over her and dominates her. And because of this, uh, and because history is often written by the victors, this story in Genesis 3, the way it is written, 
tends to make Adam appear to be the innocent bystander, while Eve is the guilty one. Eve, in this text, from a surface reading, sort of gets most of the blame. And that's also what happens throughout history. In fact, listen to what the church father, Tertullian, wrote about Eve. This is one of the early church fathers, and uh, he wrote this uh, little pamphlet called The Apparel of Women, What Women Are Supposed to Wear. Uh, You can imagine what he says in the book, in the pamphlet. Anyway, here's what he wrote about Eve. In sorrow and anxiety you will bring forth, O woman, and you are subject to your husband, and he is your master. The sentence of God on this sex of yours lives on even in our own times, and so it is necessary that the guilt should live on also. You are the one who opened the door to the devil. You are the one who persuaded he whom the devil was not strong enough to attack. All too easily, you destroyed the image of God, man. (laughs) Can you believe that? Uh, Tertullian not only thinks Eve is to blame for all of humanity's woes, he also says that, you know, Satan couldn't have tempted Adam. Adam was too strong, and so he had to go through Eve to get to Adam, you know. And because of that, Eve, you not only brought sin into the world, but you also destroyed the image of God, (laughs) which is man. Uh, The thing is, is Tertullian's explanation there has been commonly believed and taught and accepted through much of church history. But you know what? I think that Eve has been made into the scapegoat for Adam's failure. I don't know what exactly happened between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1, but I can be pretty sure that whatever events occurred, however it happened, Adam is the primary one responsible. We're going to see that as we work our way through Genesis 3. Uh, In fact, just in these opening verses... By the time Adam eats from the fruit in Genesis 3-6, Adam has failed in all of his priestly responsibilities. Remember, as we saw in Genesis chapter 2, he was created and formed to be a priest in the temple of God. And he was given certain tasks and responsibilities to perform. But by the time he eats from the tree in Genesis 3-6, he has failed in all of his tasks. He failed to tend and protect the garden from the presence of this cunning serpent. He misinformed Eve about God's instructions about not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He, He was right there with Eve during her conversation with the serpent, and he never spoke up, as was his priestly responsibility, to defend and protect her. Most of all, as we see in, in future texts, Adam failed in helping Eve keep desire in its proper place. The, the imitative desire to imitate God only so far and no further. Uh, both Adam and Eve let desire exceed its boundaries, and so they ended up uh, desiring to imitate God in ways that, that uh, he should not be imitated. Anyway, the failure here is almost all with Adam. But then he, and along with all of us after him, have almost universally scapegoated Eve and made her the guilty one for everything that has happened to humanity ever since. And it is this that is one of the most significant truths in chapter 3. We'll be seeing it in a lot more detail as we work our way through. 
Genesis 3 presents the dawn of scapegoating. This event here in Genesis 3 is scapegoating Eve. Not just because Eve is scapegoating, but it is the night before scapegoating really begins. Scapegoating Eve. I do not believe that Eve is as guilty as some readings of this text portray her to be. Nor do I believe that we have the entire story as it really happened. I don't know what happened between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. None of us do. But I know enough of human nature and temptation to know that Adam was not the innocent bystander he appears to be in Genesis 3.6. Once we begin to suspect that Adam might not be that innocent bystander, it's actually then that we begin to see clues all over the place to support this idea. In fact, in Genesis 3.12, as we've already said, he places blame on Eve for what happened. He points the finger at her. Of course, uh, we'll see when we get there. He also blames God as well. He makes God a scapegoat. The woman you gave to me, God. Anyway, that's a clear sign of scapegoating. Uh, Eve, by the way, then turns around and mimics Adam, imitates Adam, points the finger at the serpent. And we'll, we'll talk about all that when we get there. But one of the real indications that Eve is being scapegoated here is that Eve has almost been universally condemned for bringing humanity into sin. Now, sin, by the way, doesn't actually get introduced until Genesis 4. We'll talk about that, but, but uh, I'm just using it here but the way most people think about what's going on here. But, but in Genesis 3, uh, here, and throughout human history, Eve has borne the brunt of the blame for eating from the forbidden tree. And that is a clear sign that scapegoating is going on. Uh, We look for someone to blame, and then we distort the facts to lay all of the blame on one person or one group of people, and it becomes, you know, so that everybody looks at the story, here's what is, you know, the the order of events, nods their heads, oh yeah, clearly, that person's guilty, truly guilty. This is one of the difficult things about scapegoating. True scapegoating is nearly always hidden from view. When you truly scapegoat someone, you don't recognize that you're doing it. They really do appear guilty. For scapegoating to really be scapegoating, it must be nearly invisible. And that is exactly what's being done here in Genesis 3. And and why is it hidden in Genesis 3? Because I believe that the revelation about scapegoating is probably the most important truth that Scripture reveals. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I believe that the primary revelation of the Bible is the revelation about scapegoating. If you do not understand scapegoating, uh, the scapegoat mechanism, as René Girard refers to it, and other scholars as well, You will not understand scripture, you will not understand yourself, you will not understand human culture and governments and society and just everything about life. And that's why scripture reveals it to us. Nearly every event in scripture reveals something about how we humans scapegoat others and don't even know we're doing it. And that's why Genesis 3 begins with one of the greatest examples of scapegoating that has ever occurred. And then, just as is always done with scapegoating, hides it behind a myth so that 
We all buy into the myth. Now, by the way, when I talk about myth, I'm not saying Genesis 3 is is a myth. Is it, is, I'm not saying when I when I talk about myth, I'm talking about the scapegoating myth, the hiding the true facts so that we all nod our heads and agree that Eve is the guilty one, when in fact she is not. You read carefully, read Genesis three, and if you understand that she's being scapegoated, Genesis three does not pre- prevent uh, present her as guilty. It doesn't say anything about her guilt at all. We say it. Adam says it. And we buy into the myth that she is the guilty one, even though she isn't. That is scapegoating. By the way, Paul reveals that this is the correct way to read Genesis 3. For example, in Romans 5, when Paul says that sin entered the world, it's by one man. By Sin entered the world, not by one woman. So Paul is agreeing that it is incorrect to blame Eve. And of course, even there, the sin, I believe, is he's referring to... Uh, to some degree, what happens in Genesis chapter 4. Again, we'll talk about all that in the future. You might also be thinking about 1 Timothy 2.14, by the way. Lots of Christians use this verse uh, to say, see, you know, women are more easily deceived. Uh, Women can't be trusted. This is why women shouldn't teach in church, that sort of a thing. But I think even that is a complete uh, twisting of the text to say the opposite of what Paul was actually arguing. In the text, in 1 Timothy 2.14, he says, It was Adam, he says it wasn't Adam who was deceived, it was Eve, and sin was the result. My my own translation there, summary of of what he says there in 1 Timothy 2.14, but Paul's argument there is so packed with truth, uh, we often uh, assume, oh yeah, women are deceived, but you read it carefully, and yes, Eve was deceived. You know what that means? Adam was not deceived. What does that mean? What Adam did, he did with the full knowledge that what he was doing was wrong. Which is more serious? To be tricked into doing wrong or to know fully well that what you're doing is wrong? Of course, Adam's guilt is much greater than Eve's. And of course, then this sin that gets introduced, that's Genesis 4. We'll talk about all of that. Look, this is probably enough for today. I just want to introduce something new to you from Genesis 3 to see what we're going to see about this amazing chapter as we work our way through it. I know I've raised a lot of questions in this episode, and your head is probably spinning a bit. But thankfully, this theme of scapegoating is revealed repeatedly and carefully throughout Genesis 3, Genesis 4, in fact, the rest of Scripture. It's going to be coming up a lot in this one-verse podcast as I go forward. That's because it's all over the place in the Bible, as it is also all over the place in our lives. So here in Genesis 3, it's the beginning of scapegoating, the dawn of scapegoating. Scapegoating Eve. To see how scapegoating occurs, the factors that led to scapegoating, join us next week as we take a closer look at the opening verses of Genesis chapter 3. And don't forget, if you want to learn a little bit more about scapegoating, how the Bible reveals it to us, I write some about it in my book, The Atonement of God. The Atonement of God is not about scapegoating itself, but it does apply the principles of scapegoating and uh, some of the other related ideas to helping us understand Scripture and some of the major areas of theology. Uh, There's a link to The Atonement of God in the show notes at redeeminggod.com slash genesis 3.1. And, of course, you can also always find it on Amazon. 
Next week, we're going to look at this discussion between the woman and the serpent in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, and talk a little bit about that conversation as well. Thank you for joining me, and we will see you then. Bye.